Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase, get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. It is shocking how true today's episode remains. It was recorded seven years ago. It is one of the most downloaded and popular episodes of Canada Land ever because it covered something that was not getting talked about beforehand. And listening to it again, these seven years later, I've gone through it and yeah, it is still true. The, the Irving family of New Brunswick still maintain an information stranglehold on that province. There are still no serious competitors in the news space there outside of the CBC. The Irvings are still the third richest family in Canada, tied now with the Westons. The news that they publish is still paywalled from the daily flow of links and takes. Like, we do not read their stuff as we consume news each and every day. They still offer an introductory subscription, though it's now $1.99, not $0.99. The news that their papers publish about Eastern Canada still remains completely walled off. It's not part of the social media flow when we share links and talk about what's happening in Canada. The paywall prevents that kind of social sharing from happening. And the Irving's family newspapers still publish very little about the Irving family's businesses. Except when they have to, like in 2018, when an Irving oil refinery exploded in St. John 
And the front page headline of the Irving's Telegraph Journal read, Thanksgiving Miracle. Next to a picture of a massive exploding fireball of black smoke and mayhem, a silver lining take on this massive industrial accident, referring to the fact that uh, nobody was killed, never mind the 80 workers who were injured. I should also update this episode by informing you of the fact that after it was broadcast, a lawyer for the Irving family's publishing company threatened to sue Canada Land. But it was not for this podcast. It happened a year after this first aired, and it was in response to an expose that Canada Land reported. Our former reporter, Sean Craig, had a story about an Irving Media newspaper editor who conspired to alter government documents to conceal ties between employees of that newspaper and the provincial government. And we reported that Jamie Irving, then a publisher in the family's newspaper empire, was in on the decision to not cover that stuff at all, even when he knew about it. We did not meet their lawyers' demands, and they did not make good on their threat to sue us. I think that about covers it. Here now is the original introduction to this episode, first broadcast in 2014. This episode is brought to you by Daniel Murchison, Colin Etienne, Blake Novak, Daniel Keith Crawford, Janice Fryer, Brandon Kai, Masood Makarechian, and Anne Curtis. My name is Anne Curtis. I'm a registered midwife working in Toronto, Ontario, and I support Canada Land because the substance and depth Jesse and his team bring to news stories that would otherwise go untold. I also feel Canada Land is held accountable by its listeners in meaningful ways that are very much vacant in other news media across Canada. A journalistic disaster zone. That is what a Senate commission called New Brunswick when they were investigating media monopolization. Why would they describe the province that way? Because of the Irving family. If you have never heard of the Irving family, then the Irving family is pretty happy about that. They are a low-key family, despite the fact that they are the third wealthiest family in Canada. They are billionaires. They are the fifth largest private landowner in the U.S., their empire spans energy, forestry, trucking, construction, real estate, and media. They basically own the print media in New Brunswick, and they run their media monopoly like no other press baron family you've heard of. At one point, they seriously suggested that their newsroom staff all wear uniforms like the employees at their gas stations, as it would be sort of a morale-building, team-building exercise. That plan never came to fruition, but I think it gives you a little bit of an idea of how they operate. But the truth is, it's very hard to get a bigger picture of how they operate because, as I mentioned, they are very low-key, they are very private, their holdings are private, they don't have to disclose anything to shareholders, and they have been, for decades, for generations of Irvings, kind of impenetrable to journalists. They don't really give a lot of access. But that has not stopped journalist and author Jacques Poitras from thoroughly researching and investigating the Irvings for his book, Irving versus Irving. He got limited access to some of the family before they cut him off. But a lot of his knowledge of the family comes from the fact that he worked at an Irving family newspaper, the St. John Telegraph Journal, for six years. These days, he is the provincial affairs reporter for CBC News in New Brunswick. And Jacques Poitras will join me in a moment. I had no idea about any of this. I, I had no idea who the Irvings were. Is that just because I'm like a Toronto-centric? Uh, Pretty much. That's it? That's the reason? <laughs> there are other reasons why you might not. This does not show up in a lot of Google rankings, th these papers. It doesn't show up in any Google rankings. No, it's paywalled uh, to the max. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's natural you would not hear of them. I mean, I, I can't think on a national scale of something that compares to what they own and influence on a provincial or regional scale. Yeah. Their approach to the internet is, I mean, it, it seems like it is the most solid paywall I've, I've read of. Like, no free articles. Right. Yeah, no meter. No meter. No cap. And, and no social media indexing at all. No. It's like North Korea. It's like the, the hermit province of New Brunswick. I, I'm not going to go that far, but it is uh, – like I've never read an article. For, I, I've read, I read a lot yeah. of articles from Canadian newspapers. I've never read an article from these yeah. papers. Well, it's not that expensive for a trial subscription. It's 99 cents. But no, the, now, now some of the reporters do tweet a bit. Uh, but what they what they generally tweet is I mean the the they've they've started loosening up on Twitter but what they'll tweet is a link to the story and so these these tweets go out and a lot of people so when they come across one of the one of the Twitter accounts for the first time it's like great they click and then they get the uh, please log in with your account information page uh-huh. and. Um, uh, so that yeah, so it's kind of, that comes as a surprise, and of course, this became a big issue in June when the guy uh, was on the loose in Moncton after shooting those cops, and people were going to the newspapers' sites for basic information like, is the curfew lifted? Is it safe to go out on the street with this? Is there a madman on my street shooting people? Essentially, sorry, ninety nine cents for a free trial. Yeah, essentially. And this caused a big stir in social media. Everyone was talking about this, and there was a back and forth debate about should they lift the paywall. Uh, you know, as the New like as the New York Times has done for Hurricane Sandy. Yeah, it's not with right? precedent. They, they lift the paywall for forty eight hours so people can get basic survival information. Yeah, and uh, in this case, it's still not clear to me. I've heard differing things about whether uh, they chose not to or whether the the software that they use to run their paywall doesn't allow it because the Irvings are pretty frugal and they would buy the least expensive. Uh, it, it's it's very feasible that they would buy, or conceivable they'd buy the least expensive and least flexible paywall app out there, <laughs> and so you know to just sort of flick a switch and make it free may not actually be possible. That, yeah. that was one of the things that went around. Yeah, whether deliberate or not, it sort of speaks to the basic public interest role of journalism. When shit like that goes down, and you need information. You know, I mean, you can choose, I suppose. I mean, I guess you can make the parallel to newspapers. Even if you didn't subscribe, you could have gone and bought the newspaper that day, and I guess you could have bought the 99 cent. I mean, you're right. not, not going to fill when out a guy's form, on the loose, right? When the guy's on the loose and there's a police manhunt with helicopters in the air waiting till 7 o'clock the next morning for the, the, the dead tree edition to land on your doorstep doesn't quite cut it. Now, the, look, the flip side of the argument, and I, I get the flip side of the argument, and I'm kind of agnostic on this. I, see, I really do see both sides of it, is it's a business. The, you know, all media are going through this crisis these days of, of revenue and how are they going to monetize what they do. And there's dollar value to the news. I guess you could say it was real dollar value to the news at that moment. Um, and, uh, and, you know, people wouldn't have thought 20 years ago about buying the newspaper the next morning to find out what was going on with this situation. So why not, why not charge people for it? I mean, why suddenly give it away when it's in demand at, you know, at the max? Yeah, it's an interesting case because, you know, reading their their approach to the internet and social media, you could either see them as the most obsolete dinosaurs out there or you could say, hey, they've actually figured out a viable way to get people to pay for news. But that's Well, part of that's the the circumstance that there are no other daily newspapers (laughs) in the province that people can turn to for free. So future of news, everybody who's listening who wanted to figure out how we're going to save this news business – 
eliminate every other newspaper or news organization. In, you got it. That's a, it. And then you that's can charge it. what you want. Problem solved. Yeah. Because that's that's the issue is is everybody who, who considered putting up a paywall, the counter argument is like, look, if we make people pay for it, they're just going to get They're going to go to the other else. guy. Yeah. In New Brunswick, there's no other guy. There's the CBC, and so our our website, you know, is there, and it's and it's free. Yeah. Uh, I mean, well, people are paying for it through their taxes, but um, but no, in terms of in terms of newspapers, no, that's it. It's interesting to hear that they're tweeting now because you you know you write that they they weren't allowed to tweet. Originally. That's right. Yeah. I mean, this is remarkable. It's, I don't know if there's any other precedent in North America for a, a market of a news market like this. I don't think there is, and I don't think there's any precedent really for the level of uh, of um, influence in general. I mean, they're they're the biggest private sector employer in the province. One uh, in ten people uh, work for the Irvings. Well, you hear one in six, one in eight, one in twelve. It's impossible to get a, a bead on it because they're so uh, opaque. I mean, they don't have any shareholders to report to, but uh, their refinery accounts for more than half of the province's exports. So they're they're big. The, the only comparison that uh, there's a couple of comparisons you can think of John D. Rockefeller in the U.S. Yeah. like a hundred some hundred plus years ago. That's what it evokes. It's uh, like owning Kate. owning industry, <laughs> except he didn't own the media. Yeah, you can compare it to Pierre. Carl Pelado in Quebec and his media holdings, but he doesn't also own all this industry. And there's competition for his for his media organizations in, in the Quebec market and with Quebec Ore. So there really isn't a a good comparison to sort of the the industrial holdings plus the media holdings. This is the second wealthiest family in Canada. They're making obscene fortunes from their energy. From their, 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 I mean, you 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 would have a long time listing everything that they're involved in. Why are they in the newspaper business? Why do they care about media? Well, you know, it, it, it began with Casey Irving, who was the founder of the of the empire, the companies uh, in the in the twenties and thirties. And uh, the feeling, the consensus seems to be that he uh, he started buying up the newspapers because he didn't want anyone coming into the market, anyone else coming into the market. Because if anyone else came into the market, they would be scrutinizing his his companies. So the the general view is that he that was his goal to buy uh-huh. to buy up. Uh, to buy up any media organization that might scrutinize him. And he also bought a TV station, a radio station. Now, in the 70s and 80s, the story is his three sons were so spooked by the two federal investigations and the, and the attempted prosecution that they really did not know what to do with these newspapers. They, they didn't want to sell them, but they were scared that the federal government would regulate newspaper ownership at one point if they stepped out of line. So they really did step back uh, and and not meddle in them. I, I believe that. But that didn't necessarily mean they were doing good journalism because then they had editors and publishers who were kind of not disposed to crusading investigative journalism in place. And so, you know, the newspapers were kind of average and, and, and still didn't really scrutinize the Irving companies. So it was kind of the same net effect in the end. I think this is an important point because when we talk about these incredibly wealthy owners of newspapers and you talk about influence, people always imagine that you've got you know the Thompson family picking up the phone or something like that. And that might happen uh, on rare occasions. But the actual effect of having overlords like that is a bit subtler, isn't it? I mean you, you, you know who's making decisions and you know where their interests lie and that affects in an internalized way what you cover and how you cover it. Yeah, there's a quote uh, actually from a, a Globe and Mail article on the papers in, this, in the late 60s where it quotes uh, one guy in the newsroom saying, uh, 
let's be careful here, guys. We don't want the Irving boys coming down and interfering with the newsroom. So, I mean, that's that's it in a nutshell, right? Yeah. It's like it's preemptive or, or self censorship, yeah. uh, which is a which is you know which is again the net effect is kind of the same. Well, we can look at this in practice. So, how 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 have these papers? You know, what's their track record in covering? Irving Family Affairs when you've got this company that has such a predominant role in the province? There's, there's different phases and different approaches at different times. As I said, they, sort of, they were sort of hands-off, but the uh, publishers and editors were kind of uh, uh, not terribly enterprising for a long period of time. There would be periods where they would hire an editor who actually did feel that it was their role to go and scrutinize the company. So there was an editor for a couple of years in uh, 89-90 who uh, commissioned a big investigative series on pollution in the Bay of Fundy, and it really pointed the finger at the Irving companies. There was a big map that showed the pulp mill and the paper mill and how many tons of sludge were pouring out of them into into the Bay of Fundy and all this, and that was very admirable. He eventually left. Um, And then in the 90s, uh, I worked there for a time. Neil Reynolds was there, and Neil Reynolds was the one who decided to publish the story of Casey Irving's will and his offshore trust account uh, on the front page. So, you know, things like that would happen. But uh, depending on whether that editor stuck around or not, it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't last and there'd be a reversion to form and things like that. The illustration that I think best shows this problem right now is this splitting up of the companies. I mean, there's been this terrible internal dispute within the family that has led to the Irving empire being broken in two, essentially. The patriarch died and then... Yeah, and then there were there were disagreements between his sons and his grandchildren over, and, and there were things about the companies that were no longer compatible. So around 2005, 2006, they made a decision to disentangle everything. This brother would run these things, that brother would run those things. And this involved uh, offshore trusts in Bermuda and uh, and hundreds of millions of dollars and and everything and none of it was in the newspapers uh-huh. now the average newsroom on an average day has to make all kinds of subjective decisions like what are we going to cover today you know and and maybe some reporters are sick and they're short staffed and they don't get their calls returned and you know you can overanalyze on a given day whether a particular story was in or the paper or not for a given reason but over a period of six or seven years, the largest corporate presence in the province transformed itself into two companies from one. And there was no analysis of this in the paper. There was no journalistic exploration. There was no look at who was running what companies. There was one little item that appeared the day after the Globe and Mail actually broke the story of the Irving split. Uh-huh. And it was, you know, Irving says it's business as usual. And that, that was it. And it was never, the story was never heard from again. So what happens if you step into this market and say, okay, well, you know, there's a vacuum. You're, you're not covering this stuff. It, it's of incredible urgent interest to people who work for these companies. So we're going to be the indie upstart. We're going to launch a new newspaper. How have they dealt with new entrants into the into the market? Well, you know, when it's uh, had an impact on their market share, they've been quite well. There was a Here magazine, which was an alternative weekly that started in St. John, uh, 2000, 2001. And it was started by a former Telegraph Journal reporter who just thought, you know, let's publish something for the young demographic, uh, you know, not, not just listings but and not just advertorial, but actual like coverage of City Hall, but with a, with a youthful take. It's alternative Newsweek. Yeah. So, yeah, ba- your basic generic uh, alt-weekly. Yeah. And so he started it and it was doing all right. And uh, then he decided to launch an edition in Moncton. And it was at that point that Brunswick News started a competing quote-unquote alt weekly and gobbled up a lot of the ad market and all of a sudden here's numbers were 
uh-huh. declining fast. And they went looking for investors, and uh, the guy who was running it has, has said uh, in the past that no one wanted to invest in it because they knew that when, when the Irvings are sort of entering the arena against you, that uh, it's a losing battle because of the depth of their resources, the depth of their money. So eventually, they, they had to make the decision to, uh, to sell the thing to the Irving newspaper company. And then here became kind of a bland, generic uh, listings, advertorial kind of product. I mean, that's incredible. You know, looking at other papers in Canada and sort of uh, talking with journalists about sort of the worst case scenario for what could happen when a paper is owned by, you know, interests and usually they're these wealthy families. I mean, whether you look at uh, the, the, the Thompsons or if you look at the Irvings or if you look, you know, the Post being started by Conrad Black, never – in the portfolio as huge money makers, but as propaganda either either to directly report the interests and support the interests of its owners or just to prevent other voices from getting out there. And that's all well and good and you can do what you want in a free market. You can, you can start a paper, you can charge what you want, you can say what you want in it. But when we can actually see the direct relationship of them keeping other media out – you know, yeah. there's a cautionary tale for everybody in that. The you know there are I mean there are some interesting alt media uh, things developing, bubbling up in New Brunswick like anywhere else. There's a guy Charles Terrio who puts videos analyzing the forestry industry online. Uh, there's uh, in St. John. There's a zine now, uh, an old analog zine published called Hard Times in the Maritimes that looks at sort of people having a rough time in St. John. Like a photocopy zine. Uh, yeah, yeah, huh. yeah. And um, and and so there's a, I mean so there there are other things going on, but uh, you know they are they are. Um, they are still the uh, the dominant force for sure. It's it's very hard to get a newsroom full of working journalists to kind of like march in lockstep. But even when you've got these editors sort of rebelling by doing a piece on them, that's still part of the narrative of like I'm gonna I'm gonna demonstrate my independence. Uh, yeah. Well, the thing I mean, the thing is, the rhetorically, the Irvings will say. Uh, we're, our companies are fair game. You cover them, and as long as as long as you get it right. Uh, you know, as long as the facts are right, that's fine, you know. And when we do something stupid, you know, give us a whack on the backside and that's fine. But on the other hand, I interviewed Jim Irving uh, and J.K. Irving, and he said during the interview, uh, we, we don't want the guys down there raising hell. Uh-huh. And to other editors, he said, uh, we don't want a maverick down there. We don't want a cowboy. We don't want uh, – we, we want a paper that's spicy but not hot. We're in business for New Brunswick, and we want – you know the papers to be for New Brunswick. To me, I interpret that, and it's, it's pretty it's pretty explicit. They feel that the the paper's roles uh, is, is to support economic development and growth in the province. Boosterism, cheerleading, uh, and and Jamie Irving, who, who his son, who runs the papers directly, actually said uh, in an interview, uh, which I quote: "You know, the new, a newspaper can be can be a great cheerleader, can help everybody <laughs> in the community get get rowing in the same direction." Uh huh. Okay, so that. I mean, that's fine. They're free to do that. But to me, when you hear that, then you wonder about the watchdog role. Because if you're uh, trying to develop a consensus around a certain economic vision, which happens to be the economic vision of the owners and their industrial holdings, what does that mean for stepping back and being, you know, the checks and the balances in the system and the, and the watchdog and uh, asking the tough questions that have to be asked when, when that comes? I mean, I'm not sure how that is compatible with uh, well, cheer- it's not. cheerleading or rowing in the yeah. same direction or being <laughs> for New Brunswick as defined by the owner. 
And even that is a bit disingenuous because, you know, though mu- much of the censorship might be internalized, they're not above stepping in there in crucial moments. You know, as you document, when the paper endorsed the wrong candidate. Yeah, that was, now that was an interesting episode. Uh, that was an interesting episode because there's, I'm of two minds on that one. So this was in 1997. The, the editorial board ran an editorial endorsing the PC party in the federal election. And uh, J.K. Irving, uh, so that was on Saturday. J.K. Irving on Monday, the morning of the vote, had a front page letter to the editor saying, I disagree with the editorial board. I think the Chrétien government, liberal government's on the right track, eliminating the deficit. And, and we've got, you know, we just went through this Quebec referendum and let's not Let's not change change horses in midstream, essentially, was the argument. So, uh, you know, you can interpret that as having a very chilling effect on the editorial board for stepping out of line. Or you can interpret that as that's the way it should work. The editorial board obviously wasn't censored in advance in its endorsement. It mm-hmm. obviously didn't go across his desk in advance. After he saw it, he disagreed with it, and he exercised his right very transparently to say, I disagree with the people who work at the newspaper I own. I don't want to stand on propriety here, um, but it's bizarre for a paper to run a front page letter from its owner. I mean, I, I don't know. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's very unusual. I think in, in the 80s during the free trade debate, I think the Ottawa Citizen did something similar where the editorial board came out against free trade and then the publisher – who basically was representing the owners of the paper, published something in response saying the company believes free trade is good or so- yeah. something similar to that. Uh, I'd have to look that up to be sure. But no, it's, it's, extremely, it's extremely rare. And why I say they're disingenuous in saying like, hey, look, we, we just want you to be a booster for, for the province uh, is because in your interview with the Irvings about that, they basically admitted that that was not so much about what they thought was right for Canada, but that they were this close to some sort of yeah. massive yeah. deal. Yeah, yeah. And, and then he then – he sort of stopped himself from getting into that discussion uh, yeah. uh, in sort of in mid-sentence. And then you were cut off from further access and then, in fact, a memo was circulated that no one, no journalist was to speak with you. Well, OK. Let's, I just want to get the order right. I, I went back to them after the interview months later to ask a, a bunch of clarif- – wasn't, I wasn't cut off as a result of that point. I went back to them months after the interview and said, look, in, in the course of the rest of my research, these other questions have come up. And I had a list of 20 things, uh, some about the company, some about the family. At that point, they felt I was going into territory they weren't happy with, and they cut me off. The memo uh, to the reporters happened even before the interview. Uh-huh. When, I, when I asked for an interview with Jamie Irving, who runs the papers day to day, he said no. And then that memo went out to the newsroom two weeks later saying – just a reminder, we don't, we don't talk uh, on behalf of the company to outside publications. What do you make of that as a journalist? I mean, this is, of course, something of particular interest to me. Uh, I, I, you know, buck up against any sort of, like, thin blue line mentality of, like, you know, <laughs> journalists who won't talk to journalists who won't, you know, yeah, yeah. provide the same level of, um, you know, discussion about their field that we ask everybody else right, right. to provide in their, in their field. So, you know, to, to receive that memo, I mean, you, you weren't a, an Irving employee at the time, but had you received that, what would you think about that? Well, I'd obey it, <laughs> right, <laughs> for fear of losing my job. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, th- I guess I suppose if you're the employee of an organization and, and the employer is setting the policy and, and speaks for the company, uh, that, you know, they, they, there's, there's a certain logic to that. Um, but, yeah, naturally, journalists are always trying to get employees of organizations they're covering to talk. So there is a bit of a dichotomy there for sure. And, I mean, I would have, lo- I would have loved for some of them to, uh, to talk to me. But no luck? 
No luck. I mean, and you know what? I mean, I, I know a lot of them. I mean, I work side by side with them in the press gallery in New Brunswick uh, covering covering the government. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't want to – I knew they would get in big trouble if they talked yeah. to me. And I, I, and I didn't want to do that. And you know what? I had – there were all kinds of other ways to, to get information. Still, I mean, beyond just the lack of Google indexing and tweeting, you know, journalism has changed. And now there is – the walls have come down between news organizations and we're just constantly having conversations with each other on Twitter and elsewhere and sharing information and opinion. Yeah. And I, I don't see a lot of these journalists there. No. The, 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 I think one of the big problems with the, with the paywall uh, situation that they've established is they're, is they're out of the conversation. Like, I mean, you, you've seen stories get passed around, right? I mean, someone writes a story that's kind of novel or interesting and boom, it just whips around Facebook and Twitter mm-hmm. in, in, in a morning. And, uh, and they, they're, not, they're not getting that. And, and that's, so, that's really useful because then, you know, it feeds into – Sure. Then people say, oh, this is an interesting newspaper and I'm going to read more of this. Or even other journalists say, you know what, I have something to add to that. Yeah. Let me, let me, let me yeah. report another aspect or angle of that. Yeah, totally. Now, I mean, we have, where I work, we have an account. So, I mean, I read, I read the paper every day online. Yeah. In a way, I'm not a, a generic example. Example of the paywalled-off uh, news consumer, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's it's an issue for them. They're, they're not like they're not in the zeitgeist. There's no. Uh, did you see that story in the Telegraph Journal yeah. today? Conversation that happens in, in New Brunswick, which actually subtracts value for those journalists. You know, there there is. I mean, maybe they're secure, and, and uh, I don't know what the layoff situation is there like, but. You know, building your reputation amongst the profession on these social media platforms is an effective way that people get stay in, in, in employed. Yeah, no, no personal brands there. No personal brands. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what about? I mean, okay, so you know, you you, you reported this thoroughly with uh, limited access. Um, perhaps more interestingly, you were able to publish it. Now, I'm aware the last big expose of a Canadian press baron uh, may, may have been Bruce Livesey's book about Conrad Black, The Thieves of Bay Street. Uh, and Conrad Black sued him and sued his publisher. Mm-hmm. Sued him for libel mm-hmm. for publishing testimony from his trial wh- wherein he was convicted. Uh, felony conviction. So there were lines in the testimony that were quoted in this book that were then subject. Well, that's libelous public record uh, testimony. Right. And and it's a suit that I can't imagine Conrad Black has any chance in hell of winning. But it's an incredibly effective slap to uh, the publisher. And it's an incredibly expensive case to fight. And I've heard from people in the publishing business that since then, given – the relatively low uh, level of money that you're going to generate from a memoir of powerful families in Canada, that the appetite for running uh, tell-alls or exposés or anything that could be construed of, as, as you know, vaguely negative towards powerful Canadians, uh, th- there's not much of an appetite for it. So I'm curious how you got this published, and I'm curious what you weren't able to get in the book. Uh, well, how I got it published was Penguin agreed to publish it. And, you know, I, I approached this as a fair, even-handed journalist. So, I mean, there, there's there's criticism of them in there for sure. And I point out, I mean, there's no denying certain facts like the fact that they have not covered the story of the split. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's just – that's plain. Um, but, you know, I also I, – I quote them. I sought out their comments. I sought out all the family members uh, that have been involved that are relevant to the story. Uh, I, I quote people in government who, you know, defend the government-Irving relationship. Um, you know, I mean, that's – like, that's fair. I'm, I'm not – like, I'm not trying to write a polemic and I'm not trying to be an ideologue about this. I'm just trying to tell the story of how these papers have, have reflected 
their ownership. So, well, look, truth and responsible communication are both accepted defenses to yeah, a libel charge, yeah. but they are not absolute. Well, they don't prevent you from getting sued. Right. They, right. they, they might prevent you from losing that case. Right. Um, so, I mean, I wonder. Well, first of all, are the Irvings as litigious as Lord Black? Uh, do they ha- have they launched many libel suits? I don't think so. I, I don't think they launch. Uh, well, okay, let's say that I'm not going to say that Black's uh, lawsuit is frivolous, but I mean, I don't think the Irvings sue frivolously. Um, look, I did the best research I could, and. Uh, uh, I think it's a fair account. Anything you could get in there? Because I might, I might put it on <laughs> where, where penguin wouldn't. <laughs> uh, not going to go there, Jesse. Well, here's okay. Here's an example. Uh, I looked at Arthur Irving's divorce file from uh-huh. 1980. It's like about eight inches tall. Uh-huh. Okay, it's eight inches thick, and uh, there's a lot of stuff in there about what led to the divorce and all that. I, I, I wasn't really interested in why. Arthur Irving and his wife got a divorce. What I was interested in is what the file could tell me about his finances, his assets, any role in the newspapers and all that. So what I, what I cite from the divorce file is what's relevant to the story, right? right? Okay. Which was this oddity that all the stuff in his house, his furniture, his antique car, his paintings, his carpets were all owned by the company. Yeah, um, kind of curious. You know, you could you could ask whether that was to limit his his uh, his obligations in a divorce case. But you, you might even suggest that, but, we, uh, but you wouldn't know it for sure. Well, in fact, it did because his lawyers argued against some of the things his his wife was claiming because it turned out that they weren't owned by him. Right. Um, so that was the effect, whether it was intended or not. But I mean, I, I didn't need to. I don't need to get into like yeah. all this other stuff from the divorce because uh, you know, I mean, I. I just that's not the kind of journalist I am and it's not important to the story. Sure. But you know, it's it's a public file. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, And just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them 
treat addiction, and build hope. The CBC is what's left in New Brunswick. The CBC is another voice for news there. Now, I, I, you work for the CBC. And we're, and, uh, and we're not going to talk about the CBC's direction. We won't talk about the CBC's <laughs> direction, but it seems like... Only because, you know, it's, it's my employer's policy that I'm not going to talk publicly about my opinions of the CBC's direction. Okay. Can, can we talk, or I'll talk about it, and you'll, you'll, you'll fill in as much <laughs> as you're comfortable saying. I think that there is a canary in the coal mine situation here where when you essentially have market failure in terms of the market of information in a, uh, in a, in a, a news market that's happened in New, New Brunswick, here is – you know, an irrefutable role for the CBC that is an essential role that is not about competing for music streaming or for sitcoms. I mean, this is something that isn't getting done. Sure. The, the business affairs of the Irvings is not getting covered. And, uh, and, and there the CBC is with money from the taxpayer to do so. Is there any kind of mentality that emerges, you know, in your shop there? Like, is that kind of like a hothouse situation where the sense of purpose and mission amongst the journalists at the CBC in New Brunswick could inform uh, the rest of the CBC when similar trends are presenting themselves in other news markets where the privates are getting out of local news entirely or simply not doing it so well? Oh, boy. I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm not going to extrapolate the New Brunswick situation into other markets. I will say that um, given the scarcity of competition, media competition in New Brunswick, that's obviously an argument for a CBC that's that's doing doing its job, fulfilling its mandate in the province. I mean, in, in New Brunswick, we've got three local radio stations, CBC radio stations, with three local morning shows, which, uh, you know, which some people have said is, is a lot for a province of 750,000. Um, but the counter-argument to that is when you've got one company running all these other newspapers, uh, you really do need other robust media players in the market that are able to do certain kinds of stories, not because you set it up as your mission to go after a particular company, but because... This is a company that's newsworthy, and it's got to be covered, and it's important that we cover it. And is there an open conversation amongst your, your colleagues there of like, look, we, like, let's direct ourselves to the things that are not getting talked about? Well, let's pick up the slack. I'm not. I'm not going to speak for my colleagues, but you know, we when there's, there's I mean, the Irvings are are uh, are a huge a huge story in New Brunswick. You know, I mean, we've this year we've covered this decision by the province to uh, to give them these wood targets, this wood allocation that they want from public land, and we've covered that thoroughly, uh, and uh, because it's an important story, so we we have the ability to cover that story independently, and and we do it. Coverage of environmental stuff with the Irving family. How, how has how has that played out in in their papers? You know, it, it's it's funny. I mean, this is what I this is the nuance that I try to get across in the book. And that some sometimes stories are covered and sometimes they're not. Uh, over the years, when the story is so out there that it couldn't be uh, ignored, it was it was covered. And other times, there are stories that don't show up. So there was an incident with a heron nest that was damaged uh, by some Irving logging operations that they didn't uh, pay a great deal of attention to. You know, um, I mean, w- one of the things that happens is that um, sometimes it's not so much 
whether it's covered or not, it's the emphasis. I mean, there's an example in the book about some, there was some problem with one of the mills and there was a coating of, of wood dust all over the city one day but because of some problem with a filter or something like that. Well, the paper covers that because they can't not cover it. Yeah. On the other hand, uh, you know, th- there were questions once about uh, why they weren't covering uh, pollution in the Bay of Fundy and the editor said, well, we, we need something to react to. We need a protest or something, right? Like if there were a protest or something we could react to, then we would cover it. So that, that is the mentality that you've often seen over the years is we're not going to go take the initiative ourselves to, uh, to raise these questions. That brings but, up an, yeah. but if something happens that, that is like that we have to react to in the street, well, then, then we would do it. <laughs> well, then what good and are that, you? And then, you know what? That's, that's, a problem. that's a problem in other media organizations. It is. It's an interesting problem in media is to what degree, and this is about advocacy journalism, I guess, is if you require somebody to make something public and then you can kind of throw your hands up and say like, well, look, you know, we didn't yeah. break this. We're not, yeah, yeah. we're not causing a stink. But look, the protesters are on the street. Yeah. What are we going to do? Not cover them? is to kind of just abdicate your basic responsibility to say, well, this is of public interest. But I don't even see that as advocacy journalism. You're not advocating anything there. You're describing the world as it is. Yeah. Like when, when, when they did this, uh, this big enterprise series on the Bay of Fundy and did sort of they, – they went to the Department of the Environment and they asked for the stats. How much effluent is gushing out of these pipes into the Bay of Fundy? And the Department of Environment turned over you know, these stats of like – Whatever it was, thousands upon thousands of milliliters of gunk going into this uh, into this ecosystem, and the newspaper published it. Yeah. That's, that's not advocacy journalism. That's reporting. That's uh, saying here is something that's happening, and we didn't just sit back and wait for it to hit us in our in the face. Right? We we went and asked the question. I use the term loosely, just simply as an advocate for the reader's interest and the reader's well, right yeah, to know, or an advocate, not for a particular position, yeah, but. or an advocate for uh, you know. Uh, being based in reality. <laughs> yeah. What's going to happen with their media empire? I mean, they they seem to be standing in opposition of every trend. They're, they're standing in opposition to the trend, like you say, about getting it out there on social media and circulating it. But they're kind of – they might be ahead of the curve on figuring out a way to monetize it. Again, acknowledging that they're kind of in a, a unique circumstance. But um, – I don't know. I mean, I could see other media organizations looking to this paywall and saying, well, that's, that's great that that's working for them. We should try that. But other media organizations, if they do that, may just send everybody to the, to the competitor down the street. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I think, I think they're, you know, they, their own internal newsletters, which I got access to, say they're preparing for a day when there won't be a print edition. Uh, they, st- they stopped making newsprint themselves in 2005. So, I mean, they recognized – that newsprint was a dying market while still continuing to publish newspapers. Um, but I think in terms of owning the asset, the media company, they're going to hang on to it. Why would they get rid of it? I mean, they, 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 um, it, may, it may come back to, to the old argument, the old logic that Casey Irving had that, you know, better we own it than, than someone else. Haven't they, in, in essentially offering not the greatest product – uh, as you describe it, and not a pro- and a product that isn't doing some basic things that people in New Brunswick need from their media, and charging for it, haven't they created a perfect market condition for somebody else to step in finally to actually take them on? Yeah, but who's going to do that now? Like, uh, is Post Media going to launch a daily newspaper in New Brunswick? Doubt it. Uh, I, I just, I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know who would do that. I mean, every journalist in New Brunswick sort of daydreams about sort of the 
the ma- the silver bullet that some money's going to fall out of the sky and we're going to we'll launch this online thing that'll do this sort of serious in-depth coverage and but you know how are you going to pay the bills with that that's that's the question thank you it's a great read thank you that's your canada land Listen, the clock is ticking. Just a week left to get Canada Land Premium for a dollar a month for your first three months. Click on the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything that you send. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadaland.com where we have new Backbench episode. Check that show out if you haven't already. New Commons episode all about Africville. Very moving, incredible episode. New Wag the Dug episode. We are firing on all cylinders. Come check it out. I made the episode you heard today seven years ago with help from Christopher DeMello. Additional production on today's rerun by Tristan Capicchione. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like this show, please support it. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.